through the mercies of God, we're not consumed, though we deserve the full wrath of God because of our unbelief. We're born as children of wrath. So Jesus bears the full wrath of God, the justice of God, receiving what we deserve. Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you are listening to the final message in a four-part series on the book of Malachi. This is going to be covering Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hope you're encouraged. This is the most pivotal, key, and important text in the entire book of Malachi. Uh, The section we just read sums up the entire purpose of his prophecy. And so the verses that we're going to be learning today, it kind of encapsulate the entire message and emphasis that Malachi was sent to deliver, remember, to the lukewarm Israelites who had kind of settled into the land, but they had settled spiritually. It settled into mediocrity. And often, in like manner, you and I get settled into a place where we don't realize, do we, that judgment maybe around the corner. And none of us who have suddenly lost a loved one thought that morning, oh, today dad's going to die. Today I'm going to lose a child before they're born. Uh, Today my best friend is going to go be with Jesus. None of us really wake up or have the, the opportunity to see someone decline. Sometimes that happens, but we don't know the exact morning uh, that judgment comes. I read this week that King George of England, on his, in his diary on the day, July 4th, 1776, actually wrote this, nothing much happened today. It took weeks for him to realize that the colonies were in full rebellion and there was an American revolution going on. But on that morning, nothing particularly special happened. But judgment had happened, judgment had come. And in Malachi, judgment was near. Now, if you've been tracking with us, we've learned for the last few weeks, this is our fourth week in Malachi, um, we've been learning that Israel was gathered back into the land of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. They're back in the city of Jerusalem, and we learned that they had stopped doing some things. They had stopped tithing and offering their crops and kind of the best of their land back to the Lord. Uh, What they were doing was robbing him uh, by holding it back for themselves. We learned the importance of not holding back what is the best for the Lord uh, and keeping that for ourselves, but to offer it. Uh, we learned that uh, when they did bring an offering, right, it was blemished and the priests were happy to receive it and then just kind of offer God their leftovers. Uh, people weren't bringing their best, but what they had laying around. And so we learned that the priests, right, they were corrupt and they were actually enticing people to sin. Uh, the people were turning away from the covenant that God had made with them and they were beginning to flirt with the heathen nations that were around them, literally. The men began divorcing the wives of their youth and began to marry, intermarry uh, the, the, the women uh, of the heathen nations around them. And so there's corruption in the temple and there's corruption in the home. You could say in the church and in the home. And listen, when there's corruption in the church and there's corruption in the home, then judgment is at hand. The Lord must return. The Lord must intervene. The judge is standing at the door. And we, this morning, must behold who he's sending to draw our hearts back to him. And in the midst of that, we must, we have a choice, we must return to him uh, lest we're consumed in his judgment. And that's where we find ourselves today in Malachi's prophecy. We're gonna cover chapter three, verses one through seven, and then chapter four, uh, one through six. But we're gonna close the book the way Malachi does with a cliffhanger, right? Uh, Because there is a large cliffhanger that just ends and then 400 years of silence 
until the New Testament. So if you're taking note today, and I trust you are, here's the outline that we're going to be employing. First of all, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to look at the messenger. Who is this messenger? Uh, Verses 2 through 5, the method of judgment, the method. Then we're going to see the message of judgment in chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. We'll jump over to chapter 4 and look at the moment of judgment, and then the glorious arrival of Messiah, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. All right, so with that as our outline, let's start with verse 1. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, This is what Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the first word of verse 1, behold, behold. If you're taking note this morning, that means to pay attention. Behold, pay attention, wake up, observe, notice. Any teachers here today? Right? We use that word behold a lot, right? Maybe not literally, but hey, pay attention. Hey, Johnny on the back row with the fidget spinner. It's time to behold, right? It's time to pay attention. Wake up. Look, eyes on teacher, right? Eyes on me. And that's the word he's using here. Why? Because God is about to send his messenger. He's about to send his messenger who will prepare the way. And notice what the messenger would do. He's going to go and set the way straight. Uh, He's going before the true messenger of the covenant, the one in whom they would delight. Uh, And that messenger is coming. Later in chapter 4, we see the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, is soon arriving. Uh, But notice that phrase that he will prepare the way before me. If you're reading from the New King James, you'll notice a couple cool things. First of all, uh, there are some capitalized words. Did you notice the word my, me, Lord, messenger, he, those are all capitalized. But there's another word, uh, messenger, that's not capitalized, right? So, Essentially, this is saying the Lord is coming and he is going to send someone who's not the Lord who's going to come before Jesus, before the Messiah. Uh, Now, the word for prepare in the Hebrew means to turn to or to face or to regard, to give attention to. And so the voice who's crying in the wilderness is telling the listeners, hey, pay attention to the way of the Lord and turn towards it. Now, this, of course, is foreshadowing uh, someone particular. Who knows who this is foreshadowing? Yell it out. That's very good. Yes, John the Baptist. Uh, and so John the Baptist was a man crying in the wilderness uh, and encouraging the people to prepare the way of the Lord and to make straight paths in the, in the desert and a highway for God. He, John, was a forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, when we hear uh, about someone like John the Baptist, Uh, you know, it's kind of hard for us to understand where he's coming from. Who is this guy? Matthew chapter 3 tells us a little bit more. Here's what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Okay, he didn't come into the city of Jerusalem. He went out to the wilderness. He went out to Maaca. No, I'm just kidding. He's out in the outskirts, right? Not in the hub. He's out in the wilderness, And here is his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wow. For this is he, John, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So not only does Malachi 
corroborate that this man is coming, but Isaiah, hundreds of years prior, said he's coming. Prepare the way. Verse 4, this is a little bit more about John. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, there's the city, and all Judea, that's the countryside, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Did you catch that? He's in the wilderness. He's crying out in the wilderness, right? Have you ever been in a crowd of people, and someone in that crowd of people just begins crying out? They just begin yelling out. It's a little bit awkward, okay? You don't want to sit next to that guy on the subway, Uh, We were there in the subway, and a guy stood up and started yelling out, hey, everyone, I'm homeless. Can you help a guy out? That's not the guy you want to necessarily be sitting next to. A lot of people helped him out. Uh, We were walking down the streets uh, near Broadway, and this guy just started walking up to Jen and I and just started screaming out, yelling out. I don't know what he was yelling, but it wasn't my name, so I walked the other way. I was quickly leaving. Someone who's just yelling out is not someone you're attracted to necessarily. It's usually someone that repels you. But see, in this case, he's calling out a message of repentance, and he's telling people, prepare the way. But see, it's been 400 years of silence. Where's this guy been? Doesn't he see how advanced and progressive that we are now? Why is he quoting Isaiah from 700 years ago? Who is this guy? He's in the wilderness yelling out. We think about his clothing choice here for a minute. Where did this guy shop? He's wearing a camel hair garment, right? Probably not high demand, at H&M, right? You go into H&M, do you guys have anything in camel hair? Is that something? Is that a thing? No, that's not something. Uh, think It's made of camel's hair. He had to pluck the hair out of camels. Right? Did he shave it off or did he just go one at a time? Is he knitting this? What does this look like? What is this camel hair? I haven't hung out with a lot of camels, so I can't really speak on this, but he's hanging out in the desert. He's shaving camels, but at least he's got a belt made of leather, right? At least he went up upscale for, for that. He's got leather, okay? And he's eating wild honey, right? That sounds kind of hipster, right? He's eating wild honey. Like, is this local honey? Right? I just need to make sure with my allergies, right? He's, he's, but then he's eating locusts, right? He's eating locusts, okay? This is not this grass-fed artisan place that serves locusts. He's catching his food as it comes to destroy the crops, right? So in a sense, John the Baptist is even part of the redemption Uh, and the lack of wrath. He's a part of that because he's removing the actual thing that brought destruction on the crops. And that's what he's eating, right? Did he cook the locusts? I don't know. Did he just eat, go for it? I don't know. But to top it off, he's baptizing people by the thousands in the Jordan River as a sign of repentance. What what category does John the Baptist fit in in our brains? We see someone like that and we go, that guy's crazy. But he was a herald telling people that judgment was coming. Now, If you're taking note, Jesus said in Matthew 11 that uh, writing about John the Baptist, uh, that that he was a forerunner to uh, Messiah. The forerunner would be the one that would prepare the way and cry out for people to prepare the way. Uh, See, in ancient times, the kings would send people ahead of them to prepare the way for their arrival. And the forerunner had two duties. First of all, he was uh, to make certain that the roads were passable for the king. So if there was an obstruction in the road, he would come and he would remove that obstruction. There'd be no delays for the king, a clear open route through the kingdom. And secondly, the forerunner was to herald the good news that the king's coming. Hey, everyone, the king's on his way. He's about to arrive. Tell the people to get ready for the king. The highways of Israel 
had many winding, twisting roads, lots of obstruction, lots of steep hills, lots of obstacles. And so this one who goes ahead was to level those paths and to build up those areas and to make straight paths uh, for the Caesar. Uh, and so the idea behind uh, Isaiah and Malachi and John the Baptist, uh, Baptist's message is that there's a king who's coming. There's a king who's coming. Uh, he's a king whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to loose. I'm not even worthy to hold his sandal. And he wants to have a straight path into your heart. No obstructions, no obstacles. Uh, he says this morning, I want to prepare the way. Would you prepare the way? Would you allow me to come in? Would you remove any obstacles? For some of us, it's growing up uh, in maybe a Christian home that had a misrepresentation of the gospel. And there was abuse and there was hardship and there, was, there, were, there were terrible words said. And, and that's an obstruction that needs to be removed so that the gospel can get through. For some of us, it's sin. And we're just letting it encamp in our lives and we're not willing to repent. And he says, I want to prepare the way. I want to remove that obstacle. I want to I want to tear down what's in the way, and I want to build up and make it straight. Uh, prepare the way. Let the king arrive. John's mission was to prepare the way and invite people to prepare the way. Now, that's the messenger. Now, what is the method? Look at verse 2, the method. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? This is now capital H. This is the day of the Lord. This is Christ, the Messiah. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And then later he says, I'm also going to come near you for judgment and be a witness against several people. So notice with me, if you're taking note, that God came to judge, and when he did that, uh, he would refine and purify and purge and cleanse the people so that their offerings would once again be pleasing to them, uh, to him. And so the day of judgment, if you would, would right the wrongs, the wrongs that had been done. It would be a day of justice. Now, we know this verse, we sing this verse on the screen, Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? I think we have it on the screen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Isn't that a great verse? Yeah, if God is for me, then no one can, the answer is no one. No one can be against me. So I'm upset about my boss or my, my atheist family member, but if God's for me, who can be against me? No one. Well, you know what? It's a wonderful truth that God is with you and no opposition can stand up against him. But isn't the converse also true? Isn't the opposite also true? What if this uh, was reversed? And we did it this way. If God is against us, then who can be for us? Uh-oh. I don't like that one. I don't want to think in those terms about God being against me. But listen, on the day of judgment, if God is against you, then there's no one that is for you. And in that day of judgment, on that day of judgment, God will right all the wrongs. God will be three things in his method. And if you're taking note, I want you to write these down. First of all, Malachi says that God would be a refiner. He'll be a refiner. Uh, a refiner would take gold... Actually, I actually have a, a friend who's a jeweler in downtown Sarasota, and he walked me through this process. He takes the, the gold or the silver and, and heats it up. It puts it in a furnace, in a fire that heats up the metal, that brings the impurities to the surface, and then they're removed in a special process. And then this sometimes happens again and again. It's in the heat, it's in the fire that the refining process happens, removing the dross, the impurities, and making it more valuable and making it more pure. And so God says, I'm going to sit in that day of judgment, and I'm going to refine. Not only that, secondly, 
He says, I'm going to be a launderer, right? I'm going to be like launderer's soap. I'm going to take this and I'm going to, I'm going to clean and cleanse, right? Notice that it says God is going to sit. I love that. God is patient in his judgment. He's like, hey, I get where you're at. I'm just going to have a seat. I'm going to take my time, right? I, I use this phrase a lot. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. God will have his way. He will not be mocked. So if you're here today, you, the consequences of your rebellious, uh, anarchist sin against God, you're like, oh, I'm fine, I'm good. One day it'll catch up. And God will sit and he'll wait uh, in his judgment. But I think it's interesting that he's doing that out of care. Spurgeon said this, I think I see in the sitting down of the refiner a settled patience, as if he seemed to say, this is stern work, and I will sit down to it, for it will need care and time and constant watchfulness. Wow. So those two, refiner, launderer, those are for, listen, for the child of God. Okay? That judgment is meant to convict, not to condemn. You guys know the difference? I think it's sometimes really confusing to understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. Uh, we think sometimes when we're going through a hard time that God is like rejecting us. And sometimes like the disciples, we can say, well, I wonder who sinned. Remember they came across the blind man and they said, well, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Somebody sinned because we're going through this hard time. And sometimes we think that. And often judgment and correction do come in our lives because of our sin, but more often than that, it's the work of God being displayed in our lives. That's why we go through hardship. Conviction, listen, it's a work of the Holy Spirit intended to make us feel guilt because we're guilty. That's what conviction is. If you're feeling guilt and you're guilty, that's a good thing, right? You do want to feel guilt. That's conviction. That's godly sorrow that's working repentance in our lives. But condemnation is different, all right? Condemnation is, a, is this kind of a sense of an overwhelming flood of despair. And, and you kind of realize, I'm doomed to, like, in my sin, to an eternity apart from God. And that's what many people will feel until they come to Christ. And the enemy will still use condemnation and heap it on you in, uh, as a believer. Uh, but listen, con here's the difference. Condemnation presents no rescue, okay? There's no freedom, there's no escape. You're kind of on a plane that's going down and it's on fire and there's no escape. You're just gonna be doomed. That's the feeling that a lot of Christians, maybe even you here this morning, sense sometimes, a sense of condemnation, like there's this weight and I can't get out of it. But listen, conviction, on the other hand, will always present the rescue option, always. And the rescue option is repent, right? God loves us so much that as his children, we should never equate condemnation with conviction, amen? In Romans chapter eight, verses one and two, is for someone this morning, uh, Paul says it this way, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, you've not re received Christ as Lord and Savior, you're not in Christ. And so there is condemnation. Would you repent today? Would you turn in faith and receive Jesus? There's no secret sauce. There's no secret formula here. It's repentance and faith. I'm gonna turn from my sin. I'm gonna turn to him. I'm gonna receive what he did at Calvary on my behalf. And then there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, there's a law you can't escape. I like to think of it in this terms. There's gravity. And we can't escape gravity as much as we want. I've tried. When I was a tall kid growing up. I tried to dunk in basketball. Now I dunk donuts because it just doesn't work. I, I don't have the ups, right? My parents are like, he's tall. He'll be great at basketball. 
that was a good one. That was great. So they gave me a trumpet instead. Right? There's a law of gravity that we can't seem to overcome. It pulls us back down. That's a law at work. And we can't seem to escape it. The only way to escape it, so to speak, is to use a higher law. Right? The law of aerodynamics. I'm sitting on a plane, and we're moving on that runway. And I'm kind of looking over at the wing, and it's, flat, it's, kind of, it's almost flapping. We're at the back of the plane, right? Because that's where first class is, right? The back of the plane. Yeah. And so I'm getting a little worried. Like, well, there's a lot of runway, and we're not taking off yet. And so I'm, I'm trusting that the law of aerodynamics will overcome the law of gravity, and we will have liftoff, right? This morning... Notice that again. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. It's overcome. It's a higher law than the law of sin and death. This morning, it's only in Christ that we're capable of living the commands of Christ. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning, are you going through a difficult time? And are you mistaking condemnation with conviction? You need to rest in two things today. You need to rest in the reality of, the, of, of your sonship uh, as well as the power of confession and repentance. And so God will refine his children and cleanse his children as refiner and launderer, but he'll also judge, his method of judgment is thirdly as a witness. Notice with me uh, verse 5. I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. And then he begins to call out who he's going to be a witness against. But notice that he says right before that in verse 4, that when this happens, our offering will once again be pleasing. When God works conviction, repentance, now when we come to bring an offering, it's not tainted, it's not blemished, it's not halfway, it's not the leftovers, it's fully offering, and it's pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that cool? You can bring something that actually brings God pleasure. But he says to those who are not Israel, here, I'm going to call you out as a, wit as a witness. And he says, against, first of all, sorcerers. They picked up sorcery, apparently, in Babylon and brought it back. And a sorcerer not to oversimplify it, but a sorcerer is a liar about his relationship with God. And then he calls out the adulterer. An adulterer is a liar about his relationship with his wife. He calls out the perjurer. The perjurer is a liar about his relationship with his fellow men. And then, and then he says, against those who exploit wage earners, widows, orphans, and turn away the alien. In other words, they're unjust. Someone who's unjust is a liar about their relationship with the less fortunate. And so because there's no fear of God, there's an unfaithful witness, there's these lies, God says, I'm going to stand as a true witness against them. And when he testifies, what's he going to say? That brings us to our third section, the message of judgment. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's what he says, for I, here's the message, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob, Yet, from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances. You've not kept them. In other words, you keep changing. I haven't changed. You keep changing. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? And then that's when he answers in tithes and offerings. And now, theologically, I think this is amazing. The Lord says, hey, I want to encourage you today. I don't change. Theologically, that is what we call the term immutability. Immutability. That's a fun one. Say it with me. Immutability. Close. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Immutability. Uh, if you're taking note, that means in character, will, purpose, and aim, God does not change. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't change. All throughout Scripture, uh, let me give you a couple references. Numbers 23.19. It won't be on the screen. You've got to jot it down. Numbers 23.19, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie. If he said it, 
he'll do it. Numbers 23, 19. Or, or 1 Samuel 15, 29. 1 Samuel 15, 29. He's not a man that he should change his mind. Or, or there's Hebrews 13, 8. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? That pretty much covers it, right? Does Jesus change? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and in case you're taking note, forever. Uh, then there's James 1.17. James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He doesn't, he doesn't change like shadows change. Isn't that interesting that for the Scripture to, to illustrate the immutability of God, Scripture has to use, his, they have to juxtapose his steadfastness with something that changes often. Uh, something that does change. Shadows change by the minute. Men change and are fickle. But God does not, and he has not, nor he will not change. Octavius Winslow said it this way, mutability marks everything outside of God. Everything. Look into the church, into the world, into our families, ourselves. What innumerable changes do we see on every hand? A week, one short day. What alterations does it produce? Yet in the midst of it all, to repose calmly on the unchangeableness, the faithfulness of God. To know that no alterations of time, no earthly changes affect his faithfulness to his people. And more than this, no changes in them, no unfaithfulness of theirs causes the slightest change in God. Can I encourage you today? He says, once a father, ever a father. Once a friend, ever a friend. His providences may change, his heart cannot. He is a God of unchangeable love. Wow. See, God's love and mercy is communicated of all places in his message of judgment. He says, listen, because I don't change, therefore you, my people, are not consumed. Uh, the New English Bible translates this verse like this. It says, I am the Lord unchanging, and you too have not ceased, sons of Jacob. In other words, Israel may have violated the covenant with God, but he refused to violate his promises or his nature. And he promises Israel will not be consumed. If you're taking note, would you circle that word in verse 6, consumed, not consumed, okay? It's used 200 times in the Old Testament. And it conveys meanings like annihilate, destroy, devour, perish. And the verb form of this word can mean to receive to the full, the full judgment, this is what they deserve, but God, out of mercy, out of the steadfast promise of God, says you'll be spared. Notice that, church, that, that God's message to them is about his nature. Because he's faithful, they would not be consumed. And, and kind of flowing from his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his character, his nature, out of that, they are to return, right? He hadn't changed, but they had. Repentance, listen, doesn't begin with us. It begins with God's character, God's promise, God's nature. And as an initiator, he calls us to return to him. We're not the initiators that impress him. Like, Lord, I had spontaneous clapter earlier, and you should really love me for that because I'm so excited and awesome for you, right? Uh, no, the idea is that he says, child, listen, you're already forgiven. I'm never going to turn from you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I I'm true. I'm present. I'm steadfast. Because of that, I'm calling you back. Come back. He, see, he initiates and we respond. He invites them. And what do they do? They scoff in verse 7 and say, well, how? How should we return? And we covered that last week in the practical area of our money, of being generous. And that's a heart condition when we're not generous. 
And so we covered that last week. And because of that, let's skip over to chapter 4. And let's see the moment of judgment. Verse 1, the moment of judgment. He says, behold, the day, the day. Scripture talks about the day. The day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Wow. But God promises here that the day is coming. There will be fire. But listen, it's not going to be an uncontrollable fire. Earlier in chapter 3, we just read God would be like a refiner's fire. That's not an out-of-control blaze. That was meant to cleanse and purge. But this fire, listen, it's not meant to cleanse but to consume, to destroy. A justice will be fully and finally realized as God's wrath and retribution is exacted on those who have rejected him through their unbelief, their pride, their wickedness. Notice that it's complete. He says, neither root nor branch, nothing will remain. This isn't a little campfire, right? This isn't like a little candle. This is a raging inferno, but it's a controlled fire to put a complete end to the ungodly. And so thus Malachi says, behold, there it is again, pay attention, listen up class, the day is coming. Judgment is coming. Now, no one likes those terms. No one loves to hear that phrase. Judgment is coming, right? No matter what generation you grew up in, no one likes to hear judgment is coming, unless it's on people you want judged, right? You're like, yeah, judgment's coming, right? I'm sick of those Yankees winning every year. Judgment's coming, right? Or whatever it might be. Today, we're grateful when guilty men are brought to justice in the Me Too movement, Right? Because we scratch our heads, how could someone sexually abuse or assault a woman and not bear any consequences for it? And so when the judge pronounces the sentence against someone who's guilty in a court of law, we kind of celebrate. Why? Because we have a sense of justice. Uh, we were in New York yesterday, and all these people were, were rallying together against, uh, against gun violence. Uh, remember when the Parkland school shooting happened? There was something that happened in all of us, I think. Right? There there was two things that happened. At one moment, there was a great sense of pain and sorrow for the families, right? You had that, like, oh my goodness, another school shooting, and just sorrow, along with, mingled with a strong sense of wanting to do something. I want to do something about it. Someone needs to pay. There's justice. Something has to be done. Jen and I this week were, obviously in New York, we were at the 9-11 Memorial at Ground Zero, and just a fascinating exhibit. And um, I looked over at her a few times, and she was emotionally overwhelmed. And at one point towards the end, she looked over at me, and I saw the tears in her eyes. She said, we have to go. I have to go. I can't, I can't take this. We, we, we need to leave. And at several points going through the museum, I found myself at, at, mingled with, with that overwhelming sorrow, and yet I want to catch the people that did it. I want to bring them to justice, anger. Now, who would do this? We need to do something about it. And the way the museum's laid out, you kind of, they go through the time, and then at the end, you're like, who were these people? And they expose who they were, and there's this strong sense of just wanting to bring them to justice, right? That's, that's that sense of justice. We don't like the idea of judgment coming unless there's a need for justice. Now, I want to clear some terms up, because we use these terms, but sometimes we don't use them correctly. We don't know what they mean. So let me just put these terms on the screen for you real quick, uh, so we understand what we're talking about. Justice, very clear. You can take a picture of this if you have a phone. Uh, justice is getting what you deserve. You did something wrong, it's justice. If you leave today and you're heading over to grab some brunch 
uh, at Station 400 and you find yourself on Lakewood Ranch Boulevard heading south and the 35 and you're going 36 and a, a cop pulls you over, guess what? Out of a sense of justice, you get what you deserve. You get a ticket. You might not feel that you deserve that because it's only one mile an hour over, but it's still getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. The policeman says, you know what? You, you are grossly violating the law. And you're like, huh, it's one He goes, I'm, I'm just going to let you off this time with a warning. Okay, that's mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. I didn't get what I deserved today. But then grace is getting what you don't deserve. So grace would be if the policeman said, hey, you know what? I've noticed that you, uh, you had to pay some parking tickets, and, and we, at the, um, we at the station really feel bad about that, so I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, pay you back for all those tickets that you had a couple years ago. So here's 800 bucks just to pay those tickets back. Now, what is this? Right? You're looking behind you like, am I going to, is this a setup? Is this a sting operation? I just went one mile an hour over. Right? That's grace, getting what you don't deserve. Now think about the gospel. Right? Look at the screen for a minute. Through the mercies of God, we're not consumed, though we deserve the full wrath of God because of our unbelief. We're born as children of wrath. And so Jesus bears the full wrath of God, the justice of God, receiving what we deserve. And then we, who are we in the gospel narrative? You'll read this week, we're Barabbas. We're Barabbas. We're the one that deserved to be crucified, and yet because of the mercies of God, we don't get what we do deserve. And Jesus instead receives justice while you and I receive mercy. But then through his grace, God imparts to us sonship and then imputes to us his righteousness in our account and on our behalf. It's amazing. The justice, the mercy, and grace of God all mingle at the cross. So when we hear the phrase, judgment is coming, don't you, don't you like picture this guy on a street corner kind of wearing, uh, wearing a sign, scowling at people, yelling at cars as they drive by, and the sign says, judgment is coming. We don't know what to do with people like that, right? Th that person has a weird kind of category in our brain. Yeah, you guys have categories in your brains, don't you? Like, I think we all do. We have these different categories in our brains, right? So you're friends with someone, you're like, that guy's different. That guy's unique. He just must be smart, right? He went to Harvard, so he's the smart guy. That's the smart category. I think we have him on the screen, smart, right? Or another guy, you're like, okay, this guy's odd. He's not smart. He's just eccentric, right? He's a little bit weird. Uh, maybe, maybe she's the cat lady. She's a little bit eccentric, right? She's got 800 cats and growing, right? And so it's, she's not smart. She's eccentric, right? Or that one guy, you're like, that guy's impossible to understand, right? Oh, I get it. He's Canadian. Now I understand. Now I get it. Got it, right? <laughs> they get their own category. They get a pass if they're from another country. Like, okay, I get it. I, get it. I understand that. There's a little more bandwidth in our brains for someone from another country acting strange, right? But then we have this distinct category in our brains for someone who stands on street corners and yells, judgment is coming, right? We think, okay, that guy's not smart. He's not eccentric. He's, is he Canadian? You know, we wonder, He's insane, right? That's the fourth category. That guy's just insane. He's completely out of his mind. That guy probably pays for his Hulu subscription, right? right? What's up with this guy? Right? We, have the, we just don't have the bandwidth to embrace someone that brazen or bold in our minds who would actually be, in, uh, be sane. But here's the obvious question. Is that person right? Judgment is coming. Is their message right? Is it incorrect? So when we say, well, no, we're supposed to speak the truth, though, in love, and I get it. I recently polled my Facebook friends and said, okay, which is more important? If you have to choose one, truth or kindness, which one's more important? And many people gave great answers. Most of them said 
uh, truth. But isn't that a good question? What's more important, truth or kindness? And, and here's the follow-up to that question. What do you do if you don't have time for kindness? What if right now the building caught on fire? Right? I don't have time for kindness. I have time for truth. Exit immediately, right? Like, hey, I just want to let you guys know that if you're, you're like comfortable right now leaving a little bit early, there's kind of a raging inferno that's going to consume you and your children. So you probably want to get outside. I just want you to know I love you and it's out of love that I'm sharing. No, no, you get out, run, get out of the building, right? And so sometimes there's not time. Uh, what do you do when people aren't listening? They keep rejecting kindness. When truth is incarnated in kindness and it's still not heard, how do you stay true when time has run out and kindness hasn't penetrated hearts? See, the truth, be it ever unkind, is that judgment is coming. Uh, we don't live in a cyclical world where life is birth, death, resurrection, and that's all there is in life and reincarnation, right? We're progressing towards something. There's a beginning, there's an end. And so uh, we're moving towards uh, this climactic crescendo when in the end, the creation is groaning for redemption. And it reaches this fever pitch and then redemption is fully realized, the day of judgment. Uh, and we long for that day and we groan for that day and we look for that day and he says, behold, it's coming. Uh, look at verse two. He says, but, okay, that, that day is coming. It's gonna consume everyone, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise. You should have the son and righteousness capitalized. This is a person. He shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, hey, remember. Remember the law. Now, the metaphor here uh, in verse 2 is, of course, Jesus being the son. From the time of early Christians, even Justin Martyr had believed that this was a, a reference to Christ, a reference to Jesus. Uh, the sun rising with healing in the wings. The idea of wings is the, the sunbeams, right? So as the sunbeams are sending out light, they're also sending out um, a warmth and healing and life and hope. And so when the sun is shining, we equate that with blessing. We were just in New York where it was a blizzard. That hit us, Florida girl, Florida boy, in New York, and a blizzard hits. Everyone's like, oh yeah, it's the Nor'easter, they're canceling flights. I'm like, huh, this is great. I guess I should have packed more than my, um, my shorts. That was a smart move, right? Uh, when we got off the plane, our first reaction was, ah, oh, Florida, the sun. Right? It's a sign of blessing. There's heat, there's hope. Uh, but there's not much you can do to help the sun out, right? You can't light a candle outside, like, I'm just gonna help you out. I'm gonna improve on the work that you've done, sun. I want to just, you don't take your iPhone camera out or a flashlight out. It's a little bit, let me just help the sun out and kind of illuminate. No, you can't improve on it. We cannot, in like manner, improve on the righteousness of Christ, his work in our lives. We just simply stand and bask in it and receive it. Notice that he says that my people will go out and they will grow fat and they'll trample the wicked. Wow, what a promise. Spurgeon says this, understand the figure. He said, the calf in the stall is shut up, tied up with a halter at night, but when the sun rises, the calf goes forth to the pasture. The young bullock is set free, so the child of God may be in bondage. The recollection of past sins and present unbelief may halter him up and keep him in the stall, but when the Lord reveals himself, he is set free. Isn't that awesome? And not only that, but God promises Israel the reality of his imminent wrath against the wicked, and he imparts 
to his people righteousness by faith. And in the midst of that, that's going to release joy in judgment. How can we as Christians talk about the day of judgment with a smile on our face? How can we do that? Hopefully you're not going to leave here today and say to your waitress, hey, the day of judgment's coming, it's near, and you're going to be in it. Hopefully we don't, we're not happy that people are going to be consumed. Any person who represents God and is excited for the judgment, right, they don't understand the gospel. Remember Jesus looking over the stubbornness of Israel, knowing in just a generation after his resurrection and ascension that they would be decimated by Titus. He wept over them. He prayed for them. Um, If you know your history, they went on to kill over a million Jews. They enslaved 100,000 of them. Anyone under 17, your children, were sold into slavery to build the Colosseum and the Forum of Peace. A judgment was coming for Jerusalem, for Israel, and and Jesus doesn't smirk and kind of say, they're not going to receive me, I can't wait to unleash the full wrath. No, he wept over them. He doesn't smile, he weeps. We don't celebrate the day of judgment, but because of justice, we can rejoice in it. We can rejoice that God's assessment is true and he'll be glorified and deal with sin and finally and victoriously put an end to injustice. All of us this morning have a sense of justice and have been a recipient of injustice, some more than others. Some of you growing up were terribly abused. You were brought up in in a, a situation of incredible injustice. Maybe it hasn't been served yet. Justice has not been served. But in the end, the day of judgment, all the wrongs will be made right. And so God ends his word to Malachi for Israel with the promise of sending Elijah the prophet. Uh, We know this is figuratively John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, But notice what he'll do. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is more, listen, this is more than just reconciling dads and sons. This is a ministry, listen, of reconciling people back to their heavenly father. This is a ministry of taking someone whose heart is wayward and saying, I'm gonna draw your heart back to your heavenly father. We use terms like God and Lord, and those are correct. Islam apparently has about 100 names for God, but doesn't have the name Father. And yet in Romans, we're told that we can cry out by the spirit, Abba. That means Daddy. We can cry out to our heavenly father. And God wants to restore relationship with his people. And not about outward religion, but about inward relationship. A voice of one crying in the wilderness would break 400 years of silence. Because this ends in verse 6 with a curse. A curse is left gloomy, hanging over Israel for 400 years until a voice in the wilderness cries out breaking the silence. What do you do with a guy like John the Baptist? Is that guy insane? No, he's in his complete right mind. And Jesus said, among those born of women, there's not one greater than John the Baptist. But if you're least in the kingdom, then you're even greater than he. And we're those who have received sonship. Now, I believe that we live in the same days of Malachi. I want us to close this morning and receive the band back up to the front. Go ahead and close your Bibles this morning. I want to share a few thoughts before we close in a time of worship. It's a heavy book, isn't it? It's a heavy message. Israel didn't ultimately listen. And I believe that the culture we live in today was very similar to the days of Malachi. Well, how's that? Their culture was post-exilic. They were out of the exile. We today are post-Christian. The priests, the leaders, had departed from righteous living and declaring the word of God. Today, 
We know most pastors, many pastors, are concerned with building their influence and notoriety rather than a prophetic voice that reaches people. In Malachi, the people were apathetic towards the things of God. You could take it or leave it. Yeah, I'm just going to do my kind of Sunday thing. Comfortable, cozy, cold-hearted to the things of the Lord. But they still wore the veneer on the outside of being his people. In other words, they wanted the membership card without ever attending the gym, right? Today, in like manner, we can be card-carrying Christians. But what does that mean to you this morning, that you're a Christian? I don't like the term. I use the term Christ follower because that... That defines what I do. I follow Christ. Are you a Christ follower today? Because like Malachi's audience, listen, judgment is coming. God in his grace sends John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah, to prepare the way, to make the path straight and passable. And then Jesus arrives on the scene with both judgment and healing, but 400 years of silence, waiting. And this morning, we find ourselves in that glorious and silent moment in the story of God. For 2,000 years, we've waited for Jesus to return, for Messiah to come in resplendent glory, where he will judge the living and the dead. And yet this morning, here's what he's calling us to do. He's calling you and I to behold, to look, to prepare the way to return to him. Why? Because in his judgment, listen, God must deal with sin. But in his mercy, God sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sin. We call this week Passion Week. This is the week we celebrate the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And I want to remind us today of the judgment that Jesus received for you and for me. Henry Ironside tells a fascinating story as we close. He says this. He says, pioneers were making their way across one of the central states to a distant place that had been opened up for homesteading. And these pioneers traveled in covered wagons, drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily very slow. And one day they were horrified to note out along the horizon on the west, a long line of smoke stretching across the prairie. And it was soon evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and was coming towards them rapidly. They had just crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back that way before the flames would consume them. They're trapped. And one man seemed to have an understanding of what they could do. And so he gave a command to set the fire behind them, the the grass behind them on fire. Ironside says this, when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back over it. And as the flames roared toward them, from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, are you sure we will not be burned up? And the leader of the pioneers said, my child, the flames cannot reach us here for we're standing where the fire has been. He says, what a picture of the believer, safe in Christ. The fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on him and all who are in Christ are safe forever for they're now standing where the fire has been. I love that, love that. Christ, listen, has received the wrath of God on your behalf. Have you received him this morning? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.